Hey, hey, it's Kiss. Just wanted to give you a heads up on what you're about to listen to. This is the first in a limited series uh, called Through the Portal that we're doing in partnership with the Portal Project from UIC's Social Justice Initiative. You'll hear Damon and UIC Professor Teresa Cordova talking with some amazing guests. The episodes will be coming out monthly. Um, We're pretty excited about this project. Hope you enjoy the first episode. We'll be back with regular Ergo episodes on Thursday. Peace. Welcome to Through the Portal, a podcast from the Social Justice Portal Project, a national collaborative think tank hosted by the Social Justice Initiative at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Each month, grassroots activists and radical scholars will give voice to community struggles, national strategies, and sustainable alternatives for the future. The guest speakers, who are also Portal Project participants, explore what it means to walk through the portal of the current moment by centering racial and social justice issues. And we are your co-hosts. I'm Damon Williams, a movement builder, media maker, educator, facilitator, and artist from Chicago, Illinois. And I am glad to be here with a brand new co-host. You wanna introduce yourself? I don't know what to say. I got you. That's so that's so good, Damon. I don't know how to say it. I gotta think start with your name. Yeah. Well that one, that part I can probably get for. That's so cool. Uh let's see here. And I'm Teresa Cordoba, professor at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and director of the Great Cities Institute. In this episode, we are so fortunate and grateful to have Dean Spade. Dean Spade is a professor at Seattle University School of Law, is also a writer organizer, movement builder, um, and recently published a a wonderful text titled Mutual Aid that offers strategies for movement building. Dean has been working to build queer and trans liberation based in racial and economic justice for the past two decades. So this is an exciting new space. And as a participant of the Portal Project, it opened up so many opportunities and possibilities to wrestle with big ideas and share strategies. And Dean really offered that and talking about their abolitionist work and how a mutual aid ethic and philosophy can help us prefigure and build new systems and infrastructures for freedom. So really excited for y'all to hear what we have for you. So let's go through the portal with Dean Spade. We are very grateful to have the phenomenal Dean Spade with us going through the portal. Dean, we want to open up with a, with a two-part question, and that question is centered around time and define time however you will. So time could be this hour, this day, this season, this lifetime. In this time, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world? That is a huge, amazing question. Um, (laughs) I mean, when you say it is time, I'm just immediately like rough times, you know, like it is wild out here in terms of the kind of levels of crisis that we've seen, you know, growing um, and the amount of people in crisis. We're talking in the context of the pandemic that's ongoing. We're talking in the context of so many ongoing wars of the, I think a particular kind of pain and discomfort and and struggle in this long work to abolish police and prisons and immigration enforcement, because we're talking in the context of like the kind of counterinsurgency that's emerged since the uprising um, when George Floyd and Breonna Taylor were killed. And we're talking in the time of like existential crisis of climate change. It's just like so many people are super isolated. A lot of people are more visibly unhoused everywhere. I mean, just like so many, so much kinds of crisis. And there's also this sense 
it could pop off at any minute. People are more mobilizable. People have less investment in current systems. There's some kind of awakening. Also, at the same time, there's like our opponents um, as quickly as possible trying to right the ship and having a lot of clever methods for doing that. So I think for me, this is a time where I'm like in like what people call midlife crisis time, but I feel like it's like midlife liberation. So I'm having like (laughs) my own personal, like, wow, the world is on fire in really interesting, beautiful ways that make me feel more myself than ever. I feel simultaneously like deeply aware of constant despair and suffering surrounding us all. And I feel very on purpose. We'd be fools to pretend like it's all going to work out. You know, Um, it's just like, there's a lot up in the air. Hearing that complex of understanding of of existence in the world and movement thrusts, uh, we want to kind of hone in a little bit on your work. And, you know, some of our listeners may not be as familiar as others. I want to ask it in a pointed way. We want to have a conversation about abolition. And so in your catalog of contributions, what of your work feels is most directly pointed towards making abolition more possible right now? So, you know, we'd love to hear about some of your your writings, but also your teachings and organizing and, you know, how you see your work contributing to this project. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of my work is um, rooted in queer and trans liberation I came of age in the 90s when there was a mainstreamed gay politics emerging that is very conservative and was oriented towards frameworks of gay people being able to get married, join the military, like be cops and call cops. And my politics emerged as a response to that in a lot of ways. Like that is what sharpened me was like, oh no, that's not what we're doing. Like that's not queer liberation. That's not trans liberation. So I think I came to abolition actually through that lineage of working with other queer and trans people who are, you know, working class or people of color who are immigrants, who are um, people with disabilities, who are all like, no, that's not ever going to free us. And a lot of my specific work as a lawyer was supporting trans people in prisons and detention centers and foster care and, you know, public schools and welfare offices, and just really working with people on like, what are the ways to reduce this suffering maybe by doing direct legal support right now, but what's our, like, what is our eye on in terms of getting rid of these systems that are designed to like extract and kill our people. And so as part of that, like a lot of my work has been writing about the reasons why stuff like anti-discrimination laws or hate crime laws, like the kind of things we're sold that will like make things better for hated groups won't work or like reforms where they like say like, oh, this prison is trans friendly or something like that. Like just like kind of helping people dispel like the propaganda of the system as it tells us it's already addressed our issues, which it has been doing for a long time for lots and lots of groups, right? Like our entire country rebranded itself as like a place that protects black people from anti-black racism instead of <laughs> like is an apartheid state, like, you know, in a, in a, in a short period of decades. And yeah, that was quite that. a rebrand. Yeah. And it was, and it was <laughs> it really facilitated, right? Like it facilitated like maximal increase of anti-black infrastructure, like the prison mm-hmm. system, of immigration system. So I think a lot of my, my work, my work on the ground has been like a lot of like direct support for people in the systems and creating and maintaining with other people, organizations that try to operate in horizontal ways that lots, lots of people in the community, um, participate deeply and, uh, you know, trying to fight back against laws and policies that increase criminalization and imprisonment and trying to stop particular jails and prisons from being built or expanded. Like that's been a lot of my like day to day. And then my writing has been focused on like bridging a lot of these politics. Like how do we form a queer and trans politics when we've got this heavily funded one? That's the only visible one starting in like somewhere in the early 2000s that says that the police and military are our friends. How do we 
make a really clear trajectory of queer and trans abolitionist, anti-military, anti-capitalist, feminist politics. How do we talk about that? Why is that what we need? What does the organizing for that look like on the ground when they're offering us that what we need to be doing is going to rallies about how we want to get married or how we want to join the military? So so I think that my writing has been a lot about discernment and about especially discernment about like the fake idea of rights, like the idea that if, if the law recognized your group, if they hired a few cops from your group, if they um, let you serve in the military, that you'd be free. So like really like helping people think about the lies of what critical race theorists call formal legal equality. My work has also had a been part of a discussion about ending the U.S. military and also about, you know, solidarity with Palestine and freeing people from Israeli apartheid and Israeli colonialism. And so there's just a lot of overlaps with that. There's the whole conversation in there about how the Israeli government also, um, you know, uses the strategies of being like, oh, we have trans people in our military. So it's a liberatory space and talking about the ways that Israel and the United States share policing and military technologies. My work has an internationalist dimension, which is really significant and important to me, like looking at the connections globally between what we're trying to imagine in terms of liberation in our immediate sphere, like in our own town where we're like, don't build that jail and how that relates to people all over the world, fighting back against like really like a shared, shared enemies of these like global corporations, global elites, militaries, you know, so some of the work you t- you talked about uh, had to do, you said, with um, particular cases, right? Trying to get people out of jail. Are there any cases that stand out in particular that 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 taught you some, gave you some ideas, some lessons, maybe of how to do the next one? Any patterns that you saw in some of these cases? Yeah, I think that one moment that was really formative for me and a lot of other trans abolitionists was this period where in the U.S there was a push to pass the National Prison Rape Elimination Act and implement it. Sexual violence against people in prison is a huge issue for everyone in prison, but it's also particularly intense for trans people in prison. Um, You know, most trans women are in men's prisons. They're like extremely targeted. It's a huge issue for um, gay and lesbian bi prisoners as well, gender non-conforming prisoners. You know, all of us were in contact with tons of people inside prisons, especially queer and trans people facing sexual violence as a real norm. So we've got all these close contacts and people were trying to support coping with that. And then there's this thing that emerges early in my career as lawyer where it's like, oh, there's a commission on this and we all go testify and we talk about what it's like. And then what we started to hear as soon as it starts to be implemented is that this law that's supposed to stop prison rape is being used to further criminalize and punish people inside prisons in a number of ways. So like some states looked at this law and were like, oh, we need to create a policy that further punishes people if they express gender nonconformingness in the prison, like you're causing rape by having your nails long, going by a different name. Um, in some facilities, people who c- reported sexual violence and couldn't prove it, which of course, like the idea of having able to put on a case for yourself like that inside a prison, then they were punished for having had consensual sex. Basically, PREA, Prisoner Elimination Act, was like a word used to get queer and trans people in trouble in new ways. I just think that was a major learning moment of like the difference between like law and the books, anything created inside a system of caging humans, even if it says it is to reduce the suffering of people, just gets turned back to do the job of that system. Anything can be used as fodder for that job. And I just think that was very useful and profound for so many of us because also more broadly in the abolition movement, so many of us who are feminists and queer and trans people 
we are very interested in how to eliminate in general everywhere sexual and gender-based violence, which is endemic in our society. And we get told by the prison and policing system, oh no, this is how we get rid of that, which we know it doesn't get rid of it. And it actually makes more of it because police and prisons are sources of um, enormous sexual violence in our communities. And for me, I'll also add, the first places that we were all learning that this was happening with Priya, of course, was from prisoners themselves, not surprisingly, especially the group Black and Pink, which is a prison letter writing a mutual aid project all over Shout the out U.S. To Black and Pink. Yeah, where tons and tons and tons of people are pen pals with people inside queer and trans prisoners. And they also put out like newsletter that prisoners get. That was the first place that really took a stand and said, this is what's going on with Priya. And that tells me a lot about the role of mutual aid groups and knowing more about what's going on on the ground than any law and policy groups and stuff. Like it's like so easy in the world of like, especially if they're in like the world, like gay and lesbian, like legal nonprofits, like they would never think black and pink is an important group because those groups don't, don't directly support anyone. They only take on like named big impact cases once in a while when they think it's going to change policy. They don't try to help all the people struggling with something. Um, so to just see the role of different types of work in our movement ecosystem and the significance of mutual aid work as being like, oh, this group is seeing tons and tons and tons of people who are isolated from each other. These prisoners are all isolated in different facilities. A lot of them are in different kinds of administrative segregation, aka solitary, just because they're queer and trans. Um, and to have this group that's talking to all these people who are living the experience be like, oh, these people are all sharing a shared analysis of this law and its impact. Um, to me, just tells us a lot about like where wisdom comes from in our movements, which is from people directly impacted and from groups that are doing direct support people directly impacted. So mutual aid groups having that kind of viewpoint. So that for me was like a big, yeah, I don't know if that's useful, like a big kind of a case study learning moment that really um, clarified like a bunch of things about how harm works and how change works. No, that's really interesting. And I think it has a lot of application too, but it certainly does reveal a lot about complexities around that violence and the complex sets of relationships. And, it, and it's always very disturbing how normalized violence in prisons seems to be. You know, you, you hear it a lot in humor, sort of in, in, in casual references, and yet it's really such a horrible thing. And it must have such lasting trauma, too, for the people, both the perpetrators and, and the, the, the victims. Um, so it's, I, I'm really interested in hearing more about what goes on in some of this mutual aid the ways in which people are supporting one another. Yeah. Mutual aid, I mean, is obviously a really central part of abolition movements. Um, people who are doing abolition work are always doing a lot of things like trying to stop a new jail from being built or trying to stop more cops from being hired or trying to defund or trying to stop a new law that's going to further criminalize people or add punishment. We're, we're always trying to do all that stuff to, to stop the system from expanding and to, and to drink it and get rid of it. But we're always doing direct support, people who are currently inside prisons and jails and people who are, you know, most likely to be targeted and families of people who've been targeted. You know, that's essential to abolition work. And I would say it's central to all social movement work, like any social movement that grows and gets big and does stuff. Part of that work is always the direct work on the suffering that's happening, in addition to the bold work to get rid of the root causes of the suffering. And the reason it's worth saying that is that in the U.S., we have a lot of um, mythological narratives about how change happens that are designed to demobilize us. And the biggest myth is that change comes from elites. So you need to convince politicians, judges, the mainstream media, corporate heads to care about your group. And that's how things are going to change. Of course, that's not how change works at all. And those moments where we're told change works, like when we're in elementary school learning about history and we're like, oh, and they signed the Civil Rights Act or something. Those are like the late moments that are usually actually moments where elites 
are trying to re-legitimize something that movements manage to successfully delegitimize and expose. And so what we really want to look at is where is the engine of this change really? It's not that moment where they sign that law, which is designed to not work and to be hardly implemented or whatever. The real moment was, what was it like when millions of people who weren't getting paid by anybody and just were like angry and had like nothing to lose, got together and coordinated a lot to make a lot of trouble. And that work mutual aid is central too. I think one place people sometimes look that I like to think about is the Montgomery bus boycott. The famous speeches that were made are not what made that happen. What happened was tons and tons of working class black people, mostly women, coordinating rides. Like that kind of unglamorous work that is often feminized labor or very much like racialized labor of like care for each other. Like that is the glue. And in most movements too, it's the on-ramp. It's like people join the movement either because they're mad at what's happening and they, and they want to do something. They want to help people right now, which is this beautiful drive people have in like, I want to help people who are suffering right now. Or like, I need something like I'm struggling and these people were offering it. And then when I got there, they told me, you know what? We don't think it's your fault that you need that. We actually think it's like a big thing. You want to join us other bunch of other people who are trying to get rid of the whole thing. And so you get that aid or that help in a politicized context in which you're like, Oh, even though I live in a society that says I'm bad for being poor or for not having this thing, actually it's not me. It's the system. And I, and I can join the fight. Like those are the ways people get into movements. So mutual aid is like this very vital part of our social movement infrastructure. And the reason I say all this is because what I've noticed in my lifetime is that mutual aid is kind of written out of struggles. Like even if you take a class about social movements at school, they don't talk about it. It's just only about those moments where those laws were signed or maybe the March that happened, but like the care work, because it is dismissed as feminized labor is just written out. So what that mutual aid work looks like in our room, it's just so many things. It looks like people, you know, doing that hotline for people want to report conditions in the local detention center. It looks like childcare collectives. It looks like accompanying people to court, jail support, parole preparation support. It looks like we're going to build our own medical clinic in our neighborhood. Um, it looks like, I always think too about, you know, there's so much health mutual aid. There's so much the history of the women's health movement of people just taking health into their own hands of the Black Panther Party's health clinics of the Young Lords taking over part of Lincoln Hospital. You know, there's so much, but th- I think a lot about right now, the Oakland Power Projects, um, you know, people in Oakland being like, well, we can't call 911 when people have health emergencies because the cops come with the ambulance and they hurt people. And so we're going to instead train up a bunch of people in our community to do direct support people during either a mental health crisis and acute physical crisis, like a gunshot wound or dealing with stuff like chronic stuff like diabetes. And we're going to have an alternative where people can get this support without calling 911. That is a massive, deep, complex mutual aid project to do. And it's not only addressing that immediate problem of like, it's not safe to call 911, but it's also like drastically changing the capacity of that community to meet its own needs. Black communities that have always been abandoned from health infrastructure, always been, you know, set up for death. And it's also like preparing for all the coming disasters, like the budget cuts that close that hospital nearby, the, when the lights go out and when, you know, you can't use phone and it's like, oh, we got people right here in the neighborhood who know how to deal with this health crisis. Like, and not to mention the broader breakdown of our society that is on its way. So just thinking about how mutual aid is simultaneously like addressing immediate issues, politicizing people, and it's getting us more ready. Like for the next time the storm comes, the lights go out, the fire comes, the budget gets cut, you know, that kind of stuff. It's like, it's, it's, you know, it's really vital. I think it's more vital right now as we face more pitched kinds of crisis and breakdown. 
that term has gotten a lot more play in a really interesting way since the pandemic started because so many more people kind of all at once. I mean, it's very typical that in any disaster, lots of mutual aid brings up people. I just think are beautiful, naturally live to support and help and heal each other. But in the pandemic, it happened all at once everywhere. And so people really saw it. Oh my God, people are doing these food delivery projects for elders everywhere. And people are doing these community fridges everywhere. And just like, you know, people are doing all these bail funds, you know, during when the uprising popped off, right? Like more people gave to bail funds than ever had before. Bail funds are a mutual aid project, you know, supporting that immediate need, get people out. And what I've seen in the kind of mainstreaming of that term in mainstream media is a real, like trying to evacuate the politics. It becomes just like, oh, people helping each other. How cute. That's totally like, you know, complementary to existing systems, which I'm sure we'll be back online soon doing the right thing. I'm interested in therefore distinguishing what I think mutual aid actually means to me. And I think has meant in our movements, you know, people can disagree with me, of course, to me, it's only mutual aid. If it's based in a shared analysis that it's the system that is at fault, not the people who are suffering this crisis. And it comes with an invitation to collective action. Yes, absolutely. We'll give you this tent, whether or not you do it, we'll help you with your eviction, whether or not you do it. But do you want to join us? Do you want to either join this group and help other people like you who are facing this crisis? And, or do you want to like come with us? We're all going to be out protecting this landlord down the street. And, or do you want to come with us to block this pipeline or whatever? It builds our people power. It's not the kind of charity work that's like, oh, are you, you know, are you the right kind of poor person who we think is morally sound? Then, you know, if you take this budgeting class and this parenting class, we might put you on this wait list for housing. It's not that. It's not um, individualist and sort of isolating and stigmatizing. It's the kind of like, this is not your fault. It's the system's fault. Join us to get rid of this problem. Yeah, that there's a real threat of neoliberal co-optation uh, of of this notion of collective care and also like taking responsibility away from the public and the state's culpability that we we have to wrestle with. But there's so many beautiful, poignant things that that you're naming and saying that that really align and resonate with my experience. And so I, I want to try to like reiterate some of the claims I'm hearing towards the notion of of governance. So what I what I hear you saying is mutual aid is this on-ramp and it is this methodology that one humanizes and makes our political activity and direct action concrete and direct, but it also serves as this prefigurative model building where we're able to plant the seeds of the worlds that we want as we develop and harness new notions of power. And one thing you said is that that's where the wisdom comes from. And I, I hear you countering that against this notion of elite governance. So so this top-down hierarchical notion of state-backed institutions that, as you say, don't offer freedom. And usually that comes down in the form of law. So, so I hear there's kind of this tension or this opposition between law and what we create as governance structures in mutual aid spaces. Um, and so I would love to just give you the room to talk more about if laws are not what we've been taught as these like sacred edicts from <laughs> the Lord Almighty or from, you know, the holy president or the king or, you know, insert e- external power figure here. It sounds like what you're saying is that there are new notions of governance and how we relate, how we decide collectively on behavior, how we respond to harm that should be and could be happening in these mutual aid style workspaces. And I, and I want to kind of give you the prompt of I imagine most people hearing this will have been on the on-ramp, 
right? So these are for folks that have probably participated in a mutual aid effort, have, you know, went and got the groceries, went and got the tent, went and set up the table. Uh, so now that you've done that, what can we learn about the liberatory type of governance and decision making that's not just about how we give out groceries, but ab- about how we determine our society at large? There's so many things in there. I love it's a big question. one. No, you gave me so it. much that I had to I had to make it just as big to give it right back to you. <laughs> really? You really did. Um, definitely like a key piece of this is that our opponents would like us all to be passive and be like waiting every four years for that election to be like, mm, which celebrity is going to win the contest? Like we, they, they would love for us to, you know, when we think we're concerned about racism or police violence or, you know, climate change to like go on Facebook owned platforms and post about it and do <laughs> like, they, like they, they have, they have given us a menu of passive kind of dissentish looking things None of which are disobedient. I love dissentish. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where you feel like, oh, I said my piece, girl. You know, like that. It's like, <laughs> no. And so what we need is to actually like be a formidable force against them, save each other's lives, take bold, risky action to destroy them. <laughs> it's like, it's very different than like trying to be like, we said that thing so good, you know? No. So one of the places where I think law lives is in a place where it's pacifying. It's like, oh, we live under the system that's supposedly neutral and will, you know, that we we revere the US Constitution as like some kind of like holy document. And if it's just like looked at in the right light, it'll free us all. If all Congress just agreed that we stop letting people have guns, then everybody would stop shooting everybody because yes, the overlords told us to stop it. Yeah. Yeah. And also just this idea that law is neutral and the constitution is beautiful and that there, it's this deeply patriotic idea that US law is somehow like a good thing. It just needs to be interpreted right by the right Supreme court justice. And it's just like, this is like a colonial system built in slavery. Like, come on people. Like, and it's really just about private property, you know? So, so basically we, we, this kind of passivity is a lot about waiting for that thing to work itself out in the hands of elites. There's really nothing ordinary people can do. You're like, Oh, I hope the ACLU sues good. Or like, I hope people in that state vote good, you know? And I, I just want to give an example of this right now, which is there's all these anti-trans laws that people are wringing their hands about all liberals wringing their hands. Oh no, the poor trans children. All you can do is sit in your state and be like, I wish it was different over there in that state. There's something so <laughs> passive about it. And I think it does a number of things like one on the most basic level. If you care about trans youth who are definitely like, you know, criminalized, like heavily represented in the horrible, you know, family policing, AKA child welfare system, foster care who are, experience so much abuse and violence at school, pushed out of school. If you care about these kids, what you would do right now is become part of a mutual aid project in your own town to support kids aging out of foster care, to do direct work inside wherever that juvenile prison is that's, you know, holding all those kids in cages to get the police off the streets as part of the defund work in your town. Like there's a million things you could do right now to support vulnerable youth in general, in which there will be a lot more queer and trans youth than anywhere else. But instead it's this kind of passive, like what will the laws do? And so just as so much of my work has been about, like, let's not focus all the time on whether if we could just get our, our state or our city to pass an anti-discrimination law that includes trans people, like that's been like so much energy has gone into that, like, you know, or quick the federal um, government to pass such a law. When those laws are in place, they don't protect us. Just like the laws against racism have not ended racism for more than half a century. Racism, the racial wealth divide has worsened. The number of people in prison has worsened. Like it, It's like the good laws won't help. 
And the bad laws aren't the only place the action is at, right? Because when we look at just the bad laws, we're missing that the entire system of law enforcement is already pointed at these people. So quote unquote, neutral laws, like don't pee on the sidewalk are already making trans people go to jail and prison. I mean, we've had this whole debate in Washington because there's this like endless liberal gun reform lobby that just wants to pass more laws that have higher penalties if you have a weapon actually of any kind in public. But all those laws, all the stats are clear. They're used to put more youth of color in prison. It's like suddenly like I had a knife while I was on the corner of my two friends and, you know, so like the extreme misdirection and the misdirection is about misunderstanding power fundamentally. And they've really used this to trick us a lot, right? Because they love to pass laws that say like you're free or like workers now have rights or whatever. And all those laws are always about stabilizing their system of extraction. They're always about either papering over what's happening, giving it good press or PR, or literally about reorganizing a system in which there is chaos because people are pushing back against extraction and exploitation and reorganizing it to kind of further lock down the possibility of that extraction and exploitation. Right. So it's a really different orientation to like what the law is. If, if the law is a, a bunch of fictions and B what really matters is how things are enforced on the ground. You just do a different discernment about what laws are doing and, and you become much more concerned about what law enforcement is doing and what's actually implemented versus what are false promises. And then you say to yourself, no matter what the laws are here, what's it like here, right? Like the police do things that are against the law, like constantly, right? And we can do a million things in our communities to make trans youth safer, no matter what the law on the books is, right? So it's not, yes, like we should fight the anti-trans laws. They're terrible. But this kind of like, all I can do is wait and see what the newspaper will say tomorrow about the anti-trans laws and nothing to think about the things that are endangering trans youth and then three blocks running my house. To me, that's very frustrating. That's how law succeeds as like a pacifying narrative. And I think in the US, the law is a is a dynamic force that will change just enough in the face of opposition to preserve the status quo of extraction and immiseration and, and, and brutal violence. And so our job is to have our long vision, like abolitionists do, we're like, we want to get rid of all the prisons and police and detention centers and psychiatric facilities, et cetera. We want to measure our steps based on how material change that's happening in people's lives. And we want to choose our strategies, not based on this abstract notion that if the law said good things, we'd be all good, but instead like, what can we do right now about what's happening to people who are living at the, at the point of the knife, you know? Thus, um, mutual aid then comes into play. It was interesting how you were talking also about uh, the, the role of mutual aid in, in change and in more long-term change, right? Particularly beginning with the consciousness around um, understanding that it's not you, it's the system, um, the, uh, you know, un- that, that it's an invitation to action, invitation to be together. I'm curious um, to hear you talk more about how it's transformative and the ways in which mutual aid actually undermines a lot of these other things that you've been talking about, sort of the extractive aspects, for example, of our society. Yeah, that's a great question. And this relates to part of Damon's question I didn't get to, too, about like governance. Like, so I think part of what's going on is we're encouraged to be really passive. We're living in a time of where things are really scary and there's like the best entertainment technology ever, you know, available. Yeah. And people Ooh. are just like, yeah, I mean, this is really good, like video games and TV shows. Um, and people are really isolated. There's so much research about how lonely people are. People don't have like nobody to confide in, no friendship, more people live alone than ever. I mean, there's just like, and then the, that's that research is all like pre-pandemic, you know? So if we're being shaped and scripted to be like really individualist, competitive, um, not have a lot of human connecting skills, obedient, 
we want people to get the opposite set of skills, you know, to be caring, compassionate, to know how to make decisions together, to know how to share stuff, to have deep solidarity politics and know how to care about somebody's experience, even if it's not their exact experience. And these are, we want a totally different set of skills that we're really being discouraged from having. And I think that participating in community work generally, but in particular mutual aid, does that, right? It's most people, people I'm meeting now who got mobilized during the pandemic and uprising. It's like, they were just like, this is the first thing I ever did. That wasn't just like, I'm supposed to go to school. I'm supposed to go to my job. I'm supposed to, you know, like look at Instagram and maybe I've entirely express my kind of concerns through only through my engagement with social media, which feels like a real place I'm in, but like actually didn't, nobody got any like food or housing. Cause I was there yelling about it today. You know what I mean? It's not like it's meaningless, but it's not very material. So when we're part of mutual aid groups, we get to experience things like belonging, which is so important, but we also get to practice the really hard work of like, how do we be together and be all, all our different ways and have all of the rub of like our differences, both in terms of like power differences, like doing work across racial groups, across gender and age and disability and all that stuff. And also like the ways we're all traumatized by the systems we've lived under and where we come in prickly or we come in really passive or we come in, you know, we come in with all the baggage of how we got by, you know, we come in like slightly dishonest or, you know, super ready to fight everybody or all the ways that we all, you know, show up. Mutual aid groups are a place where we like work in groups, you know, and I think a lot of people in our movements are very aware. There's a lot of conflict in movement groups. People in movement groups are really struggling with conflict. A lot of groups fall apart from conflict. Um, Preach. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the bulk of my work in the last several years has just been, and this is my book about mutual aid that has a lot of this in it, has really been about like, how do we work in groups to skill up, to be able to work together? So I think, A, when you do mutual aid work, there's already automatically political education that happens. It's like, you join because you're so mad that this thing is happening to, this, to you know something you heard on the news and then you get there and you find out like a million more dimensions of it. You're like, oh, I really cared about how this was happening to the children. I get there and I'm like, oh, I actually care about how it's happening to adults. I never thought about why it would be more targeted at black people. And I never actually thought about what it'd be like to navigate that if you had, you know, a physical disability. And you're like, just like your solidarity capacity expands because you're if you're hands-on in the real day-to-day of something that's messing people up, there's going to be tons of differences inside all of that. And you're going to be learning just to care more about more parts of it. Your indictment of the system is going to get deeper. You're like, oh, wait, it's not just this part of the immigration system that's wrong where they put the children in the cages at the border. It's also this and this. Wow, what's happening to domestic violence survivors during this? What's happening to this particular country? Why are they all coming? Oh my God, what's the U.S. doing in their country? Like, you know, inevitably you get deep political education just to do actual material work in communities in crisis instead of just reading about it and seeing what what who's been we're told by the news media is deserving inside that group. And even if you've had the experience yourself. You're like, oh, I, yeah, I'm pissed because it's happened to me in the shelter. But then you're like, oh, other people have this other experience in the shelter because they have these other trajectories of harm. So you're just building solidarity beyond your own experience and beyond whatever you initially cared about. So that's an amazing feature of mutual aid. It's just like people get a lot more information. But then I think the bigger part, and so much this is what I was saying, so much of my work in the last many years has been about how do we build groups where a lot of people can participate and be heard. How do we create decision-making methods where we actually listen to everybody instead of somebody bossing everybody around? You know, most of us have only been in spaces in our lives where somebody is bossing. It's like a parent, the teacher's a principal, you know, in the church, there's a hierarchy everywhere. How would we build non-hierarchical spaces? How do we build a space where we're like, actually every single person in here has wisdom about this and we're going to be smarter if we all come together than if we just listen to whoever started it or whoever's the oldest or the white guy or whatever. And also 
you know, we live in a system that tells us that we should have majority vote and that's fair, which is a terrible idea because if, if we're all doing a, a mutual aid project together and there's, you know, say there's 20 of us and three people in this group use wheelchairs or walkers and we're just like, oh, they care about whether it's accessible. We're just going to outvote them. Like that's, that's not justice. Yeah. The, the Lonnie Grenier tyranny of the majority. Yeah. Why would we do this? Like, especially people who care about our values, people listening to this podcast, like we're really interested in what's affecting people who are most harmed, who may not be in the majority. So, and also if we're doing mutual aid work, it's almost all unpaid work to support our survival of our communities, right? Our opponents do not, are not going to pay us to do this work and they're the ones with all the money. Um, and so we don't want to outvote people who are like, I think it should be Sunday, not Monday. We want to have that full discussion because they're just going to stop coming. <laughs> you know, if it's like, they can't be heard here. Right. So it's, so moving people, these are like wild ideas. Moving people away from the idea that majority vote is fair is huge. And saying instead, like what we really want is to talk things through enough to come up with a proposal that's been like modified by everybody's own wisdom in the room. And so that we could actually have something everyone can live with. And that actually then everybody would implement it better instead of having like a few people ram their proposal through and get their way. A bunch of us are just going to be like, that's kind of sucks. I'm not going to do it, <laughs> you know, which is what we all do at work already. And at school, we're like, I'm going to do the least version because I didn't decide this. Right. So we want people to have the experience of actually co-governing things of what I would call collective self-determination of being like, what do we all assess is the right way? What do we all think is the problem? And we want to have the capacity to learn from hearing somebody disagree with us. It might get better if I listen. You know, these are not skills that we have in a, in a, in a society where we're like, be right, never look wrong, never make a mistake, never be seen failing. Like, which is all to me, the carceral society, that's just like, it's very like a binary, like everyone's very being a bad guy, not a good guy. So there's like no room to like receive feedback, to find out something new, to learn in public. Like, so basically these are skills we can grow even in our tiny community fridge mutual aid project or our community gardening mutual aid project or our babysitting collective. We babysit your kids while you, when you go have to go to welfare hearing, whatever, or we we're driving people to visit their relatives in the prison. Like when we have to coordinate logistics together, you can learn on the job for real. Like humans are like actually naturally collaborative. And we just have to like kind of loosen from these really tight contracted scripts that we're under. So when we do mutual aid, we're both doing the like work that politicizes us, that helps us to get ready for bolder action. You know, you have people you trust. So you're like, maybe I actually will go like chain myself to those train tracks and block that cool train. Cause now I've actually got some people in my life who care about me and who have my back and I feeling trust and connection for the first time. And, you know, like in this isolated society, all of that, but we're also practicing new social relations that we need, especially when things break down and suddenly there's no power on our block. We need to know how to talk to each other and talk to people who are not like us and figure out how to share the, you know, somebody's got some, this battery store. We need to figure out how to share it. Like these are the skills for the breakdown, you know, that, that is happening intermittently that some people are living in all the time. And that is certainly coming for all of us. So I think it's, um, it's prefigurative that we're, that word that Damon used for in that way as well. It's, um, it's prep work for, for more disasters. It's work to become the people who we need to be for what's coming and for who we need to be to have the world we're trying to have, you know, like what kind of personality would I have if I lived in a world based on mutuality and care and where I lived in a world in which I took bold action for everything I believe in, instead of in which I was like passive and obedient and scared. And, you know, like what do I would have to know how to do that I have been kind of de-skilled from. And that I think is what people are like learning when, when they do mutually work together. All right. I, I want to name something I'm, I'm feeling or hearing, and then I want to be honest about, I have a really big question. So first, just on that, I, I want to name the importance of the praxis 
that have been built through the, the ideology from from trans, gender nonconforming, and queer liberation struggles. Because what what I hear in that traditional notion of decision making is this strong upholding of of binary thought, right? Like that everything in the world is either or, X or Y, man or woman, right or wrong, I vote yes or no, right? Like there's only two options that my brain (laughs) can compute at any one time. And so therefore we have to vote, raise our hand. And if we all say no, then we go to the other side, right? And, you know, what trans communities tell us, what gender nonconforming communities and queer communities tell us is that human existence is multiplicitous. And there are so many, there's an abundance of options. And so oftentimes we bring a proposal, there's some type of conflict or contention, and then we just say no we're not going to do it as opposed to working to reconcile what is causing those differing positions, right? And say, oh, well, let's come up with a third option, basically, right? Like, let's reconcile this binary or get past this dichotomy to come up with third, fourth, fifth, and an infinity of options that, you know, meet all of our needs. So one, I just want to affirm that that's one thing that I'm hearing and that that thinking for me came explicitly from the liberation from the gender binary. But now I I have a big question that's about sites of engagement. And I want to be honest with you. It's really two questions, but I'm making it a one question for the sake of time. So if it's too big or overwhelming, it's really more of a prompt to let you cook than you got to get to all of it. So I want to think about the different sites of where this abolitionist work happens. And I want to first start with you. Of You gave us this really eloquent explanation of how the law is basically an invalid entity. But you named before coming on, Mike, uh, that like kind of your day job in this compartmentalized way is you're a professor at a law school, right? So so you teach at lawyer school. And I, I want to think about our listeners that maybe aren't the the activist organizing side of of the Portal Project, but more the radical scholars of I can imagine in some spaces, you know, you're teaching at lawyer school, as I like to call it, and you're saying that the law is invalid. People have to look at you like you have two or three heads at some point. And so just navigating your humanity and positionality in that space that like you are existing kind of in contradiction to. Um, and then to the second part of the question on this notion of different sites of engagement in terms of this movement work, um, some language I've been developing to talk about abolition is carceral militarism. We want to abolish police, prisons, shelters, detention centers, borders. It, it, the list gets too long, right? So I feel like the the language of carcerality around confinement and exclusion and militarism around organized violence and the intersection of those two, carceral militarism, feels like an appropriate umbrella of what we are trying to abolish. And so you've been doing this work longer than I have. Really, the, the, the Ferguson uprising is what activated me. And I feel like that moment also created a split in terms of the sites of engagement of abolitionist work, particularly around carcerality. So I feel like post-2014, there's been a, a, a big uptick around police abolition and you know intervening on the violence on the street. But then I think so much of their origin of the work comes from prison abolition, right? And obviously we're cousins or we're oftentimes the same people, but they're different sites, they're different entities. And so are there different approaches from the inside to the outside? Admittedly, that who take a deep breath. That's too much. That's just a prompt. Some gumbo to let you cook and then let's see what you got. <laughs> I love those questions. Yeah. So yeah, my day job is working at a law school. Um, I don't have any illusions that that's like my movement contribution. But while I'm there, it's a great job for, for a person in movement. You know, it's like compared <laughs> to my job as a poverty lawyer, which was like a million, jillion hours a day. It's like 
professor job is like so much more chill um and how you have more of your own time and you can use the copiers so the cows come home you know <laughs> so there's a lot of great things about it um you know i take seriously that um idea that our main relationship to the university should be to steal from it um so i i hope that the students i get to encounter who are interested in doing some kind of work to alleviate suffering like especially students i have who are like come from you know families that are struggling with you know the immigration system with the prison system with poverty like i hope that my work and my engagement with them helps them make choices where they don't end up in a job they hate <laughs> you know like because a lot of law jobs you're just like oh i'm actually like part of a revolving door in which like I represent the legal system to my client. I'm the one who gives the bad news. Like, yep, you still have no pathway to immigration or like, yep, there's no appeal for you. Or, you know, like I hope that my students find out about social movements for me. A lot of them don't know about them. They could come to law school because they're like, I want to change the world. I'd be a lawyer. Hope they find out that that's not how it works and what social <laughs> movements are and that they join social movements. I try to really, you know, um, help them do that and find out a more accurate account of social change and the one they've been sold. And I hope that leads them to get to do work that they really care about in the world. And I also know that for a lot of them, that's not going to happen. Like they have $300,000 of loans and they're going to actually end up going work for our opponents. <laughs> you know, like it's, and so any job you have, you can make it a space of potential transformative work. You can organize people there about the stuff that's happening there. All of our universities are spaces that are reproducing all the harms and the broader world. But yeah, I don't necessarily think my job is like the place where I'm making my contribution more than if it were any, I think it'd be the same if I was working at Starbucks, I would be approaching it the same way if I was working at all the places I've worked in my life, including <laughs> I did work at Starbucks when I was younger. Shout um, out to the new unions. Yeah, totally. Exactly. Right. Anywhere you are, there is organizing to do, you know, um, and anywhere you are, if you're getting paid, you're working for our opponents. There's a chance to um, Just try to do something it. different there. Yeah. It's, they, they have the money. Um, so, and yes, it's very weird to be a law professor there and be, I mean, obviously I'm an anarchist. That's not like a thing in law school. It's a <laughs> concept people have heard of. It's not something that I don't think, I don't know if people can actually comprehend it about me. I don't know. And I'm, you know, I was the first trans person ever hired on a tenure track job in a law school. That alone has been a trip to be trans. At out, your out school trans or? In the country. Anywhere. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's such a conservative field. It's so conservative. Anyway, honestly, I feel like it's a favor when you're such a wingnut in a space, you don't get confused and think it's your space. You're not, and like, oh, I should get my sense of self here. I suffer so much less in academia than people I know who are being raked over the coals in like an ethnic studies or gender studies department. Because <laughs> I'm like, oh no, I didn't expect to be like at all, <laughs> you know, cared for or, you know what I mean? So, and then if something cool happens, like if you meet really cool students somehow or some cool student organizing pops off or you're able to connect with anyone there on anything, it's like, this is great. You know, but you're getting, I feel like it's just important for me to like, for my well-being, it's great for me to think of myself as, as rooted more in my, um, organizing work. Um, anyway, yeah. So it's been, it's fascinating. It's hilarious. Sometimes, sometimes it's frustrating. Sometimes I'm like, oh my God, this is such a weird fit. Is this the best use of my time? But it's like, you know, we all need to get paid. Um, and it's a great job compared to every job I've ever had. Um, so I love this question about the difference between doing police abolition and prison abolition work, because those things are sometimes siloed, which is so wild. Um, and I think leads to bad reformism because, you know, we have this thing in, in Seattle where we're like, you know, a lot of us want to close the Seattle Municipal Court. That's one of our goals, which is the court where they process all the misdemeanors. So it's a lot of unhoused people and very poor people being processed for what are considered very low level offenses, but it's just feeds the county jail, which we also want to close. Um, so you could be like, where, where's the root of the problem here? Is it like you close the jail? If you only focus on closing the jail, you'd miss the court. But if you also stopped arresting people, like if we could just defund the police, then you would, the jail and the court were closing. Like, it's like all of it 
makes sense. And the problem is when instead of looking at the whole pipeline and trying to close it all, we instead try to fix one of the ends of it. You know what I mean? You could abolish any of it and you get rid of all of it. If there was no, if there was no criminal laws, the police would it'd be harder for the police to arrest people, although they probably still will because they arrest people all the time for things that have nothing to do with the law. Um, you know, or if you if there was no police, it'd be hard to get people into those prisons and jails through that court. You know, but I think that yeah, the danger of of when people only root themselves on one kind of end or spot in that system is that it becomes instead a reform project about changing that institution. I think we're in a very juicy moment, like in some ways, prison abolition work, police abolition work, court abolition work is kind of all the same. It all has certain elements. Like we might be trying to defund that thing. We might be trying to stop moments where they're expanding it or building a new one. Like, you know, there's a lot of shared strategies. There's a lot of that complicated dance where you're going toe to toe with the government. I say all this just to say like, we're in a very experimental time, especially because the ideas of police abolition or defunding the police went mainstream, which we didn't know if that would ever happen in our lifetimes. Each of these moments, like the, the moment of, of Mike Brown's death and the ways in which that changed the conversation about policing and criminalization in the U.S., you know, each of these moments, you don't know when they're going to come and you don't know how much traction they're going to get and where and how. And so the fight for abolitionists is to be like, how long can we keep a lot of people mobilized to push for more? How much can we get our opponents to stay on the defensive? And then our opponents are like, how soon can we spin this to, to build the budget again? How soon can we make people forget this and think that it's already been resolved? Cause we have a few talking points and we hire, we put some black people in high places or, you know, whatever the, their methods are that they use again and again. So I think it's, um, it's really challenging, but I, I do feel like it also relates to, how hidden prisons are in our society and how imprisoned people are so deeply dehumanized and any amount of harm that happens to them is acceptable is really the for it's, it's like so so such a deep 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 rooted anti-black ideology so dehumanizing that the moment on the street it's got a different t- take up in the um in the public imagination and so maybe perhaps one way we could think about it as part of our job is to help people care as much about people encountering the police as they care about, you know, have the kind of solidarity extend. I think about this, even with like protesters who were criminalized during the uprising in 2020, a lot of people really cared about that and gave to bail funds, but people don't really care about those people are currently still in locked up. <laughs> like, and especially if you already had some kind of contact with the system, you know, if you are more vulnerable for any number of reasons, you're a person with disability, you're black, you're, you know, poor, all the reasons certain people are more likely to have been locked up after that. And other people are more likely to not have stayed locked up. So like, um, how do we extend people's solidarity to work? Also, that's people love the immediate work. That's like, if I give to get bail fund right now, people might get out right now, as opposed to like, if I form relations with people who are in prison for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years life, I'm not going to have like immediate satisfaction. I'm going to have to live with the grief of the reality of how profound this system is. And it's not this kind of like snapshot moment. It's this like lifelong work of like being with people who are more vulnerable than us and things that like some, some of us, if we want to, could try not to think about, you know, because we're not the ones in the cage. Um, and that's also a skill. It's like, I think one of the biggest skills we need right now is people's ability to actually stay with extreme discomfort and how profoundly bad things are instead of being like, I'm just looking for something hopeful. I'm just going to flip through Instagram and look for something hopeful today about Ukraine. It's like, how are we de-skilled from being with the fact that millions of people are living in cages? Like if we just really actually like that is, and how can I feel that deeply and have that be mobilizing to my sense of purpose and action instead of having feeling like that is um, uh, too much to, 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 to perceive, you know?
people ask me, I, 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 so, so people are like, how do you have hope? You know, like what we're sold hope is, is just like, tell me a nice story about how there's a renewable energy project. And I'm like, uh-uh. <laughs> Like it's not like happening. Like there's no, there's not a tech fix out of this climate change, you know, like whatever. So I think that people often want like that. And that's just an emotional skill set that we have been de-skilled about. Everybody on earth <laughs> has been through like brutal migrations, colonial, and like our communities do have ways of holding profound grief. We just have been separated from them and we have to rebuild them again. So I think a lot of, I've learned a lot about this from people like, Tourmaline and Morgan Basicus and other collaborators over time who've really pointed to me to like, what does the work movements do to create spaces where people can take in how significant the suffering is and have that not be demobilizing, but instead be like how we do that in community is it's a shared purpose. Right now, we all get the bad news on our phones by ourselves. We're like doom scrolling and just feeling like frozen and scared and we're alone. And I think humans were designed to grieve in groups and to like hear bad news in groups. Even just hearing someone you know died used to be always, you heard that from somebody you knew. Now we hear it on social media. Like that's so painful. So like, how do we rebuild an architecture of like community digestion of suffering? And I think in mutual aid groups, people are often doing that because you're doing the work day to day and you're like, ouch, it was just so painful. The Today we were back at the encampment of unhoused people and we found out this person had gotten beat up by the cops and we saw their injuries and we, you know, we hugged each other and we hugged them or what, you know, just like, how do we actually digest together the realities of the system in a way that's like mobilizes us to practical change? I think there's something that is freezing about, about hearing all of it by ourselves, you know? Um, I don't know how I got here from police and prisons, but you know. <laughs> Well, and ultimately it's about community, right? And how do we build community? How do we sustain community? How is community a source of, of change and capacity building and, and practice as, you, as you've talked about? So, yeah. So we want to give you opportunity of, to talk about possibility. So we, we've gone through this portal together and this project is about creating space for those who are movement involved, those who are trying to create new worlds and new futures, whether it is, you know, in a more traditional air quote, activist way or in a more traditional air quote, scholarly way, and obviously trying to reify the, the intersections of those two spaces. Um, and so if we have our little radical think takes, right, and let's, let's project into the future, we've done this work of building deeper collective consciousness. What is more possible once we go through the portal of, of having these conversations and wrestle with some of these heavy ideas that we won't be able to have concrete or complete answers to in our lifetimes? What, what is more possible once we go through the portal? I mean, I'll just share with you like how I want to live. Like I want there to be no landlords, no bosses, no cops, like really think about that. So when I think about it, it's like, you know, if I think about like a person right now, like all of us, we have to go to these wage jobs. We have to get everything we need through something that, that enriches someone else. Like if I need healthcare, someone's making a profit. If I need childcare, someone's making a profit. If I need care for my elder, someone's making a profit. If I need food, like everything I need is mediated through extracting from me and from the planet. And I have kind of no choices except for like which exploitative place to work and what to buy. What we want is the opposite of that. And so then it's like, well, what if we were providing childcare together in the neighborhood and one day a week I did the shift, but my kids got to go there all the other days. And what if we were doing our healthcare through community clinics and through things like the Oakland Power Projects. And what if we were, I was getting my food through this network of community gardens and farms? And so what if more of the stuff I need to live 
was not coming through that wage system. And I was getting more of my time back from that wage system. And also we've squatted a whole part of our neighborhood and a bunch of us aren't paying rent. And we have enough people that were able to go toe to toe with the cops because we're in solidarity with so many people from all these other projects that when the cops come and try to push us out, we turn out 10,000 people. Like how many people does it take to keep the, I mean, this is just a big question in our movements right now. How many people does it take to make the cops not do a sweep of a homeless encampment in a park? A lot of us keep showing up and they will send, they'll spend a million dollars to send that many cops again and again in our cities. That's how much it's worth it to them to clear those 20 tents. But picturing our lives as something where we generate the basic necessities together and get to like not be bought in with all of our time to our opponent's system that enriches them and, and, and perfects their domination of us. That's like the big question. And I think I, part of the reason I bring that up is because a lot of people I talk to at mutual aid stuff, they're just like, I don't have any time. And I'm so tired. They've got us right where they want us. If we don't have any time or energy to do anything in our communities towards our liberation, that is perfect for them. And if we're like, I can only do it if I'm going to get paid great because they're the only ones paying. So they'll make sure that all that happens is stuff that works for them. That's what the nonprofit system is. So I really think art is super useful for us. Science fiction, music, poetry, like how do we picture this world we're fighting for that is so different that we've been told not to imagine it so that I can be, that can mobilize me to want to fight for it. And I can feel it when I get a little bit of it. I can feel like, oh, somebody just brought me a bunch of greens from the community garden. I'm living in the future right now while I eat these greens and I can like really feel that or like I just babysat someone's kid while they went to court. I just lived the future. I just like, and then also how can I, while I'm changing that diaper or like weeding that garden, how can I feel the feeling of purpose and aliveness of that future world, even while I do that stuff, instead of being like, oh, this works burning me out. Like, I think that whole story about like burnout and exhaustion can be about the fact that we are super practiced at feeling avoidant because of course you should feel avoidant of your homework and of your chores for your parents and of your job. Like, yes, that's dominating. Just call me out. Why don't you danger? <laughs> right. Just say my name when you say that's it. beautiful. <laughs> that is like, that's resistance. The fact that we, that we feel like yuck about that. Absolutely. But we, then when we bring that yuck, I hate work feeling into our movement work, it's actually poisonous. And then now I'm mad like, Oh, Damon, you were two minutes late or Oh, I did more of the spreadsheet than you did, you know, because I'm feeling avoidance as my ethic. So how do I get purpose as my ethic? How do I learn to taste the freedom that we even produce in a moment together through some ordinary care? You know, when I think about possibility, I'm just like, can we do more imagining of what that world would look like? And then also noticing we sometimes do it for a minute. Wait, I think we do know how to do this. We made a decision together where I was like, oh yeah, like Damon disagrees with me and has a point. Great. Moving. You know, like any moment where we do that, I think that we need to do some savoring, you know, so that we can kind of like build our capacity to like feel for that and move towards that and and have energy for that. Even while we're living under terrible conditions, some people way more than others and everybody who's ever like resisted and pushed back, we're living under terrible conditions. That's why they did it. You know what I mean? So it's like, it can't be a reason to not work and collaborate together. So I think that's a lot what's on my mind right now. I think of possibility. Thank you for going through the portal with us and, and taking us to that. Um, where can listeners find you in the ways you want to be found? 
a lot of my work is on my website, which is deanspade.net. I don't know why it's .net. Hold it down um, with the .net. I noticed that. I, I'm old. I'm really old. Um, and also, <laughs> something I specifically point to, um, recently did a, a video series. Yeah, no, with, I have uh, to pause you because I was looking at your website. I was like, oh, man, this is this is really well organized. I should have a website like this. And I looked up. I was like, and .net. Okay. Let me, let me see if there's some advantages. I'm not a biz. I'm not a com. I don't know. <laughs> You're on the net. I get it. <laughs> I, I am totally on the net. You can find me on the net. Um, <laughs> I recently did this video series with the Barnard Center for Research on Women about building capacity for mutual aid groups. And I really, if people are actually trying to build groups, I want to direct people to that because it's really just like nuts and bolts of common obstacles, just trying to like, can we not reinvent the wheel? Like there was just, we, we all ran into the same problems around decision-making, around building group culture that's based in mutuality, around redefining leadership, around, you know. So anyway, I would recommend that to people who are like, in the throes of like, oh, we're in a mutual aid groups and things are getting hard or we're starting one. How do we do this in a way that will make sure it, it succeeds and lets new people in and doesn't get kind of stuck, you know? So, and you can find that the information about that on the, on the deanspade.net. <laughs> Thanks so much. It's been great spending, spending this time with you. Yeah. Really nice to meet you all. Thanks so much to Dean Spade for joining us on our first episode of Through the Portal. Truly receive and feel fed by what Dean offered and really provided a clear vision of the type of collective care we need in building the world we want in order to skill up in dismantling the oppressive systems that dehumanize and harm us. We'll be back with another episode of Through the Portal where we'll dig deeper in economic democracy. So shout out to SJI and the Portal Project. And thank you listeners for going through the portal with us. We'll see you next time. See you next time.